This is No Love Live with Pastor Tim Warholic. Tim is the senior pastor of Paradise Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas, Nevada. Yeah, I, I wanted to share with you guys, we moved out here a couple months ago from the Northeast. And the first week that we lived in Las Vegas, my wife and I and, and our five kids, you've probably seen them, we've probably bumped into you running around the sanctuary after church. Um, <clears throat> we had more Christian fellowship from this congregation and the believers in this church than we'd had for the last five years in the Northeast combined. So, and it was not for lack of trying. We had, we had tried to find a church where we could actually get plugged in and fellowship and hang out with people. And so I just want to, from my family to everyone here, I just want to thank you guys for all of you that have reached out to us, that have talked to my wife, um, watched our kids in the, in the child care and, and just everything that you guys have done. So it is a huge blessing to find a place like this here in Vegas and far beyond what we anticipated coming out to Sin City. That's, that's for sure. So, um, But yeah, let's uh, once again, I just want to lift up uh, Tim and the team that's out there and pray for them. Um, this is not specifically a missionary trip, but you know that the Lord is going to work, that he's going to work through Tim and through the other churches and, and the other believers who are there. So let's just lift them up one more time. God, we thank you so much for bringing us all here today, Lord, from whatever we went through this morning and whatever we went through this week and this weekend. We just thank you for the opportunity to be here with other believers and to be in your presence, Lord, and to seek your face and to come here and know you. And we just pray that whether it's here or in Israel or whatever part of the world your believers are in right now, we pray that your word would go forth and accomplish its purpose, that you would speak through your, your children, your servants, through Tim, um, <clears throat> and just bring the gospel. And we pray for our own hearts, God, that you would open our hearts to hear from you and to receive from you whatever word or encouragement or conviction you have for us. So thank you for your spirit and thank you for everything you've done for us this morning. We love you and we lift this up in your son's name. Amen. So Tim asked me last week um, if, I, if I would consider sharing, and he told me just to, to share from whatever the Lord has been, has kind of had on my own heart over the last couple of weeks. And we've been going through, Tim's been going through a series on the Forbidden Kingdom, and he's been talking about this, this dichotomy of the, the self, ver the flesh versus the spirit, and serving our own personal kingdom versus serving the kingdom of Christ. And uh, so I've been thinking a lot about that. I've been thinking just what it means to be a servant of Christ. He went through, um, in his introduction to Matthew, he went through each of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he talked about just their personality and the way the Lord used that in their ministry. Um, and so that's kind of, it's just been with me, and I've been praying over it and just thinking about it for the last couple of weeks. And so when he, when he asked me, he said, he said, you know, whatever the Lord has, uh, has been doing in your own heart. So it's easy enough. But first, before we get into it, I wanted to ask you guys, 
In your own mind, I want you to take a second and think, if the Lord Jesus, the risen, glorified Christ, appeared in the back of the room today, what is a question or several questions or what, what things would you say to him if he were to be come physically into this room and be here? So just be, be thinking about that while we go through kind of some of the scriptures here and um, we're going to revisit that a little bit later. Our life as believers in Christ, and I, I want to say also, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you think this is all made up, if you're, just, if, if you're here because someone coerced you or whatever the case may be, just play along and just pretend. If, if Jesus is real and he's the God of the universe and he holds the entire world in the palm of his hand, what would you ask him? What would you say to him? What things would you have on your mind for him? Okay. As believers, we have several different roles in the kingdom of God. We are adopted children of God, sons and daughters. It describes um, one of my favorite verses is when Jesus rises from the dead. Talking to Mary and Martha for the first time, he says, go and tell my brothers that I have risen. Up until that point, they're always they're his apostles, they're his disciples, his followers, his servants. That's the first time that Jesus says, go and tell my brothers that I've, that I've risen, that I'm back. Um, so we are adopted sons and daughters of God as believers. We are saints. We are, Peter says that we are royal priesthood in the kingdom of God. We are collectively as the church, we are the bride of Christ. It says we'll be reunited with him in the marriage supper of the lamb that's described in Revelation. Um, so we're, we have all these different roles or titles. Also, we're imitators and followers of Christ still, which is the basis of the term Christian. Christian in Antioch, the believers that were preaching the gospel in Antioch several years after Jesus died and rose and ascended into heaven, they saw these guys preaching the gospel and saying the same types of things and doing the same types of things. Um, and they called them Christians, which means little Christs. They're like, hey, they're like that guy from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever it was, the, that Jesus guy. They're, they're Christians. They're little Christs. Um, so we have all these different kind of titles. And real quick, if you guys need Bibles, I forgot, raise your hand and we have Bibles for you in the back. They're going to bring them up. So if you don't have one. So we have all, all these different kind of hats that we wear as Christians. They all work simultaneously. We are all of those things, God's children, God's servants. But what I want to focus on today is the life of a servant of Christ. We are servants and even slaves, as described in the New Testament, slaves to Christ, purchased by the, the precious blood of the Lamb. It's a, a price that no, and no one of us could have paid. It's a debt so heavy that only Christ and God himself could pay it. And so he purchased us. And this is something that is described throughout the scriptures. It is clear. And throughout, you can see, you can go down on the strip. It is clear in, in human experience, and it is laid out for us in the scriptures, that you will be a slave to something. You can either be a slave to your flesh and to sin and death and a slave to yourself, or you can choose to be a slave to Christ. Those are your only two options. 
okay? And think about it. Look at your own life and look at, ask yourself the question, do you control your flesh or does your flesh control you? And this is something that I've seen throughout my life that I do not have the capacity in myself to even behave the way I want to. I can't, I, I can't love my wife and my children and my family the way that I even want to. There's something, there's some sickness inside of me that causes me to, at times, you know, have a short temper with my kids or snap when they're just doing, you know, normal things that I get overwhelmed or I get anxious. And I don't even have the capacity to love the people that love me back and I mean the most to me let alone Christ's standard of of loving your enemies and blessing those who do you harm and who persecute you and all these things. So we are, the reason we commit our lives to Christ is for one of several reasons. Christ is just better than we are. He proved that. He came. And the reality is, there's a, a Christian philosopher, Dallas Willard, he said, The reality is that Jesus could hold your job, be born into your family, go through all of your experiences, and he would still do it perfectly. So all of our excuses of why, you know, our upbringing, and um, for me personally, my dad kicked me out of the house when I was 15, and I had to drop out of high school. So, you know, this, this and that. We all have these excuses of why we lash out or why we carry this baggage and this burden and why we treat people the way that we do or whatever. Jesus could live your life, go through your experiences, live in your circumstances, work your job, be in your family, and he would do it all perfectly because he was a good servant of his father. It says that his everything that he said, he only spoke the words that the father gave him to speak. He lived his life about his father's business. It wasn't himself. So I want to turn to the basis of our salvation. If you turn to Ephesians chapter two, I want to look at this. Not to, because I do not want to lose sight of the love of God that that calls us into his family. So it says in, in chapter two, verses one, verse one of Ephesians, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being being rich, in, the, in mercy, sorry, my underlines are throwing me off here. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So this is the, the foundation and the substance of our relationship with Christ, is that he loved us so much that he delivered us from our slavery to sin and death and made us autonomous so that we get to do whatever we want? No. He made us slaves to righteousness. So slaves to Christ to be about his business so that he calls the shots. He gets to to tell us what 
what we do with the rest of our life from here. But he is so good. And this is something that if you know Christ, you will love him. And if you love Christ, you will serve him. It says that if you, you know that you love Christ, if you keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. So if you back that up, if you don't serve Christ, it's because you don't love him. And if you don't love him, it's because you don't know him. It's that simple. I mean, I've never met someone who truly knew Christ and didn't love him. And the same is true here. So um, this is something that is unique in Christianity. Everyone else, every other major world religion or worldview or, or whatever you want to call it, they all have this kind of just like checkbox. They slide it across the table and they say, well, here's our requirements. You check all these boxes, you call yourself X, Y, and Z. And people look at it and they go, and this makes sense to us because we live in this society where we're like, we're, we're rewarded for what we do. We do this, we get that in return, right? So this appeals to our human nature that we should just be able to do X, Y, and Z and we get to call ourselves. And it's, if you're an accountant, you do X, Y, and Z and you call yourself an accountant, right? In the kingdom of God, as a child of God, as a servant of Christ, you do whatever he tells you to do. You don't get to say, so the reality as a servant is you can be serving in church your entire life and be in total, absolute rebellion to God because he told you to go serve the God, serve his kingdom in China or, or whatever the case may be. He called you at some point in your life to do some specific thing or some specific ministry and you stuck around and you did what you wanted to do, right? You can be, even if it's good things, you can be in total, utter rebellion to Christ doing really, really nice things. And that is unique in the Christian experience. No one else says, it, says that. No one else says. You, because Jesus says, the word says, that to anyone who knows the good he ought to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So if Christ pricked your heart a couple weeks ago that you really should volunteer and help out in, in children's ministry. When Tim was talking about children's ministry or, or the service or the different opportunities to serve, if, if the Lord put it on your heart that I should serve in some capacity, and you failed to do that, even though you're doing other great, nice things, that is open rebellion to your new master, Christ. Okay? So we're going to look at um, the, the primary focus in, <clears throat> of the message today is uh, Luke chapter 17. And this is a, a kind of a unique story in the sense that it's not found in any of the other Gospels. Um, it's only in Luke chapter 17, verse 7. It's a story of, of these unworthy servants. So Jesus starts out, he says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep? And just real quick, I just want to touch on this. Anytime Jesus starts off with, will any of you? He's about to say something that kind of makes you feel silly. Like he says, he says this in, in Matthew where he goes, Would any of you, if your kid came and asked you for bread, give him a rock? And he says, or would any of you, if, you're, if your son came and asked you for food, give him a serpent, like a poisonous snake? And you're like, uh, no, that, 
and then he's painting a picture that, okay, so you understand how this parent-child thing works. So when I tell you that God is your father, you should have some basis, and it doesn't matter. So my dad might not have been the greatest role model. Your dad might not have been the greatest role model, but still, you understand how this parent-child thing kind of works. You have some basic understanding. And so Jesus says, would any of you, if, if he came to you, so he's doing that same thing in this text in Luke 17, where he says, would any of you who has a servant, so he's asking, do you guys know how this like master-servant thing works? And in their culture, they absolutely did. They were subject to Rome, they couldn't do anything that they wanted to do. They were um, forced to obey their masters, which was the Roman kingdom, along with everyone else that Roman conquered at that time. So Jesus is, is pointing to something that they know and understand, this servant-master relationship. You know how this stuff works. And so he asks them, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once, recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is kind of, I mean, this is one of the more harsh things that Jesus kind of went over, right? We are slaves to Christ, but it is on the, it is to be understood on the foundation of God's goodness towards us, that we serve him willingly. And, that, and that's where the concept of a bond servant, um, Paul talks about in Romans being a bond servant of Christ. And it was this, it was this cultural thing among the Hebrews in the Old Testament where if you were, if you served someone because you owed them a debt for one reason or another, and then you lived in their house and you served them until that debt was repaid, and then, but you, they took such good care of you that you just wanted to kind of take, take over and, and remain in their house and raise your family with their family, you would essentially pierce your ear with an awl, nail it to the doorpost, and it would identify you as a bond servant of that person. And so when Paul talks about it being a bond servant of Jesus Christ, that's what that meant, is that he was, he had seen the goodness of Christ as a master, and he had willingly committed himself to a life of service to Christ because he believed his master to be good, okay? And this, if you have not known him, to be good, then you will not love him and you will not serve him. The call first is to come. He says, taste and see that I am good, right? But going back to this, so the reasons that we serve Christ is one, because he's good. Two, because he's, he, the victory is his already. He's already won. There is no, we're not all waiting to see how this all pans out or anything like that. So um, one of the other things that makes Christianity unique among other worldviews, in Isaiah, God says, I will, show, I will show you, I will prove to you that I am God and there is no other like me. He says, I will show you the end from the beginning. 
So this prophetic nature in the, the scriptures and in Christianity, and Jesus came doing the same thing. He came doing the exact same thing. He came to his apostles and he told them, this is what's going to happen. They're going to kill me. I'm going to raise again. Tear down this temple and I'm going to build it back up in three days. Talking about himself. He was telling them, I will show you that I am God and there is no other like me. They're going to kill me. I'm going to raise again. The victory will be mine. There is no wondering how this is all going to pan out. So that's one of the benefits as a, a servant of Christ is that we know how this all ends. We know how it's all going to work out. We don't have to sit and wonder. So the third thing is that it is only as children of God that we get to claim the promises of God. So the promises of God include uh, in Romans where it says that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Um, the promises in the, in the Gospels where Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat or where you're going to sleep. God cares for the birds and he cares for the, the flowers in the field and he cares infinitely more about you than he does about them. So these are promises that you only get to take as a child of God because they only exist for children of God. So turning to Psalm 50, I want to take a look at this. So in Psalm 50, Jesus, who, I mean, God, Jesus, I use it interchangeably sometimes. So um, in the Old Testament, God is talking to first to his servants, Israel, in, in chapter 50, verse 14. And he says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. This again is another promise for his children that you can call on him in the day of trouble and he will deliver you and you will glorify him. Now going on, he says, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips, for you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. And this is true. If you have not come to know Christ and entered willingly into serving the kingdom of God, what right do you have to claim the promises of God that are reserved for his children? And you understand this, because imagine that you are at the end of your life, and you have all of your family, um, children, grandchildren, I mean, all of your family gathered around you, and you're going over your, your final wishes, and your will, and your inheritance, and how it will be distributed, and then imagine that the neighbor boy shows up, right, who isn't part of your family, and he shows up, and he's like, I'm here for my inheritance. It doesn't work like that, Right? And this is, it is not about God being exclusive because he has invited everyone into his family. He has opened his arms. He has said that anyone can come. He said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. So it is an open invitation on this side of heaven to come to him and become a part of his family. But on the other side, you don't get to show up for your inheritance if you never joined his family in the first place. 
And that ultimately rests on you. So people who say things like, I, I talk to people sometimes where um, I say, well, I'm just going to get up there and see what he says. You know, I'm just going to get up there and, and just trust that he's a nice guy. That's just not how it works. It has nothing to do with him being nice. You're either a blood-bought child of God or you are a child of wrath, described in Ephesians. There is no in-between, and it's not because God hates you. It's not because God doesn't want to be with you. It's the exact opposite. He has created a way through Jesus Christ for all of us to enter into relationship with him. But unless you do that, you don't get these promises. So moving on, we're going to, so looking at what it means to be a servant of Christ, okay? I, um, I always had an idea of what I thought serving Christ was going to look like. So growing up, I came to the Lord when I was young. My mom raised me, you know, in church and, and all this. But it wasn't until like 13 or 14 years old that I really committed my life to Christ. And after that, I started um, kind of traveling around doing different short-term mission stuff and everything. And I realized that I was kind of different in my approach to, to life in general. Like I, I wasn't really drawn to Western comforts the way a lot of other people are. I've for years, I never, I just, I never wore shoes. I would sleep in my car just because I wanted to, not because I, I didn't have, I had both of my parents who I had restored my relationship with my father at that time, I could have stayed with, but it was just easier for me. And so going through school and ministry, I'd get off work and I'd drive to the parking lot and it was the middle of winter. So I just kept a sleeping bag and I'd sleep in my car instead. And I, I did the same. I mean, I spent time in Africa and I went to other places and I just never really cared where I would sleep or where I would end up or, or what I had. And I always thought that because of that, like, okay, I understand that I'm not, I'm, I'm kind of weird. I'm not really like other people I know. So I, I had this picture in my mind of how my, my life was going to play out. So I, I even told my wife when, when we were talking about potentially dating, I said, you don't want to, you don't want to be with me. I'm going to be, I'll live on jungles and I'm going to be living in third world countries and probably eating bugs and fried grasshoppers and, and you don't want that life. And I was trying to talk her out of it. And she, thankfully, she corrected me and she said, well, you don't know what the Lord has for me or how he might change my heart. And so we talked about it. We dated for two weeks and we got married and, uh, Texted our family and we just said, hey, if you want to be at our wedding, we'll be at the courthouse this afternoon. So hope you can make it. Um, and it's been seven and a half years now. We have five kids and it's been great. So, um, But still, we always thought like because we just don't, we aren't drawn to these things. We thought that this is what it would mean to serve Christ. We thought that it would play out in this certain way. But then after we got married, shortly after, as we're praying and, and just trying to see what the Lord has for us, the Lord brings about the opportunity to get into law enforcement, which I had no, I had, I had a, I mean, an inordinate number of my friends were convicted felons. And I, I brought my best friend from childhood out of a meth lab when he was 15 years old. And so I had no draw towards law enforcement. I had a clean record. I'd never committed a crime, but I just had no appeal to law enforcement. But I'm new, newly married. I had adopted my my wife's son, he's now my boy, and 
So I, I thought, okay, well, we'll just pray and we'll see, put in for the application and see how it goes. So I got into dispatch and I started working in dispatch. Now I have to wear shoes and I have to wear like collared shirts and slacks and I don't get to do what I want anymore and I'm being told what to do. And then, then that start, starts to progress. And so um, we had a lady, we had just bought a house. We had a lady that um, needed a place to stay that we knew of from our church and she couldn't get in because um, she didn't have, have just the circumstances. She couldn't get into a place large enough for her. I had family in town. And so I told my, I told my wife, what if we apply for patrol and give this lady our house and I just stay with my mom until we find out if we get into patrol because they might re relocate us anyway. And so my wife, two months after giving birth to our second son, packs up the entire house in three days, moves out. We let this lady stay in her house. We move into my mom's house. And just still, just praying and, and trying to seek the Lord, we put in for patrol. I'm a high school dropout. I have no law enforcement background or experience or history of, of any kind. But they let me in. I don't know. They, I had been in dispatch for a little while, so they let me in. So I get into, I get into the academy, and I, the first week I call my wife and I said, Babe, I am not like these other guys in here. I, do, I don't want to boss people around. I just want to like change tires and help people on the side of the road and help people out. Like I don't, I'm not like all these other people. And she said, well, if the Lord has called us here, then he will, he will cause you to succeed. And so I stuck it out and I ended up, I, I pushed through and I, I worked my hardest and I, I graduated number one out of our academy. Totally the Lord, nothing, not to, not to brag because I had nothing in me that made me a good fit for law enforcement, but the Lord prepared me for what he was ultimately taking us to do. So I get out of law enforcement and they station us and we buy a house, a second house down in, in uh, Southern Idaho. And within a couple of months, we start to have this conviction that my, sh my focus has shifted that now I have, you know, I have a decent job now and, and now I'm starting to like wearing shoes and my, my cop boots and I like my charger and, you know, and I'm starting to get into this comfortable kind of place in our life. And I realized that my focus had shifted on serving the Lord, that I had always been focused on serving the Lord, but now I had shifted to this kind of subconscious mentality that, well, I'll just, you know, when I retire, then the Lord can have my life. And we'll do missions when, when I retire and we'll go into ministry, you know, at 55 and we'll have a good long life after that anyway. And I immediately, when I realized that I had, my focus had shifted, I had this conviction that, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to offer the Lord my first fruits. He died. He gave his life. He, he bought me. My life is not my own. It doesn't belong to me. And so we, we prayed and we said, Lord, if there's something else that you want us to be doing, then let us know. And my friend calls me up the next day, who actually he used to be a missionary in, in Hungary. He did ministry with these guys, with Tim and, and Grace. And he calls me up and he goes, hey, man, I'm, I'm working with this Christian solar power company in the Northeast. If you know anyone looking for an opportunity, let me know. And at first, I thought, this is crazy. No, I'm not taking, I'm not giving up my career in law enforcement that I just began in the house we just bought and everything to go and take a full commission sales job in the middle of winter in Connecticut. This is insane. And all my friends and families started to try to talk, talk me out of it. But 
in the realization that my life is not my own, that I am bought with a price and my calling is to serve Christ, I came to, we came to him, my wife and I, and we prayed and we said, what would you have us do? And you guys all know how that works out. So I had just signed papers on our new house in Twin Falls, Idaho. I walked in three days later, resigned from my position, loaded up our family, and my wife was then pregnant with our third child, and we drove across the country to Connecticut to begin working in a full commission sales job, selling solar power, which I knew nothing about, in the worst winter in 100 years in Connecticut in 2014 and 15. And it was miserable. And I had these moments where I thought, Lord, this is not what it was supposed to look like. I was supposed to be in Africa or in South America, or I was supposed to be doing something, something for you that had meaning or had some lasting value. Now I'm out here talking to people about solar panels. And the Lord continued to just give this conviction. So all of this, again, when we look at the servants of Christ and the, and the disciples, the apostles in the New Testament, they all completely misunderstood what God's calling was on their life, even up until the day that Jesus ascended into heaven. The day that Christ ascended and the angels came down and they said, just as you saw him ascend, you'll see him come back on the clouds. That day they said to Jesus, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They thought like Solomon's kingdom was coming back and they're going to reign with Jesus and they're going to have this massive empire and they're going to be Jesus's right hand men. He had already overcome the cross. He had risen from the, gate, from the grave. And they thought, this is just next in line. You're going to take over. We're going to be there with you. And we're going to show him who's boss, right? Total, absolute misunderstanding of what it meant to serve Christ. And they, every single one of them individually, they learned when they received the power from the Holy Spirit and they began to understand Christ's ministry. He ascended and he he brought a kingdom more substantial than any physical geographic location or kingdom or throne ever could have been. And so we have, um, we have the life of one of these servants. And this is kind of what I, I'd been thinking about the life of John. And John, you remember, James and John were brothers, the sons of thunder described in, in the Gospels. At times, and there was just this total misunderstanding. They were arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And when you restore this kingdom to Israel, which of us is going to be greater than the other? And Tim talked a couple weeks back about Jesus serving the apostles and washing their feet and telling them, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, you go and do the same. And he said, no servant is greater, greater than his master. And so Jesus was preparing them for this life of service that they would slowly but surely begin to fully understand. And this is the same for every one of us. You guys know how later in life you think back to things that your parents told you and you go, oh, that's why she used to say that. I think that all the time with my kids now. And she's, and I think, oh, that's, what my, that's my, why my... My mom used to say that. My dad used to say that. 
Jesus was doing that in his teaching, in his ministry, in those three years, three and a half years, whatever time it was with his apostles. He was preparing them and he's given us the scriptures to do the same for us. You have everything that you need. It says we have everything necessary for life and godliness in Christ. You have the scriptures and you have the Holy Spirit and you have everything that you need to be a good servant of Christ. Okay? So I want to go through, first of all, the when things don't look the way that you expect, right? When you're serving the Lord, it is, it is evidence of our faulty expectations, not some flaw in God's plan. And if you have ever been there in your life where you're going, God, this isn't what, I, I mean, at times I still struggle. I wasn't ever supposed, I wasn't supposed to be pushing papers and doing payroll and doing the whole corporate thing. I never wanted any of that. I thought I was better suited for some other type of service, but I don't get to call those shots because I am just a servant to my master. And if he says that there, there is some purpose in me doing this, then who am I to argue? Because he knows the end from the beginning, right? So if you have been at that point in your life, and when you look at this passage in Luke, where Jesus is telling them, if any of you, if you had a servant plowing or tending or keeping the sheep, he has appointed those servants in those specific roles for his own purpose because he knows something about you. And whatever he has called you to do is the best possible thing that you can do in the kingdom of God and in the course of your own life. It is the most fulfilling and the best possible outcome for you to be exactly where God has called you to be. And so each of, I want to go through this real quick. Each of Jesus's apostles learned this. So James, known as James the Great, the, he was John's brother, the son of Zebedee. He served Christ. He was beheaded. Um, he, he was martyred for the Lord. Philip labored diligently in Upper Asia and suffered martyrdom. Um, he was scourged, thrown into prison, and afterwards crucified about, <clears throat> about 20 years after Christ resurrected. Matthew, the tax collector, served in Africa, um, Parthia, all over the place, and then ultimately was slain with a, a halberd in the city of Nadaba, I think Ethiopia, in uh, AD 60, about 35 years after Christ. So each of these apostles had some perspective, some perception of what serving Christ was going to look like. And every single one of them, save one, met some horrific violent end. And you know what? None of them, from what we have from their writings, gave any indication that they questioned God's goodness or his plan or his purpose in their life at that point. They questioned it in the beginning, but at that point in their life, they all served willingly because they had learned the goodness of God, that God, that Christ, whatever suffering they were going to go through could not be compared to the life that they would have in the end with Christ. So John specifically, and I asked you guys to think about this. So I was talking with this guy earlier this week about he was raised as an Orthodox Jew. He's a self-proclaimed atheist. His brother is a rabbi now. And we were just talking 
um, I met him through a solar appointment and we were talking about Jesus. And I was just talking to him and he was sharing with me, you know, if I could ask God one question, it would be, why did you take my mom when I was six years old? And when you look at, if you look at forums or they've posted questions like this on, on blogs and, and stuff where they ask, um, what's one thing you would say to God? It pretty much wraps up into three, three categories. One is the people who would ask questions that God already answered. This is when I was a teenager, I was, I was praying in a coffee shop and I was saying, Lord, Lord, speak to me. Just, just share something, just speak something. And one of, the, one of the first times that I really clearly heard from the Holy Spirit and he said, I wrote you a whole book that you just never took the time to read. And I was like, okay, well, <laughs> I guess I'll start there. So I, it was the, for the first time in my life, I started in the scriptures reading from cover to cover. And think about this, this is kind of a side point, but if, if you got married and your wife handed you a love letter or your husband, handed you a love letter when you first committed to the relationship and you, you made vows and everything. And you went 10, 15, 20, 30 years and you never even bothered to read the letter that she wrote. That's kind of messed up, isn't it? That's how I was as a Christian is the Lord had given me this letter, this instruction where when I enter into a relationship with him, I have all of this information about him and about what a relationship with him is to look like and what he expects of us as his children and everything. And I had never even taken the time to, to read it. So side point, um, none of the apostles, none of them showed at later times in their life because we have the epistles. None of them showed the same misunderstanding. It's almost as if the more suffering that they went to, through, the better they understood their position and what Christ had for them. And ultimately, that's where we find, so the, the last of the apostles who, the only one who wasn't martyred was John, John the Beloved. So he was the brother of James who was beheaded. And we find him in, in Revelation chapter one, he's gone through, it's been his entire life if you looked from an outside perspective, not from a Christ perspective, but from an outside perspective, his entire life appears to be brutal and difficult and just filled with trial and hardship. Every single one of his closest friends was dragged to pieces, crucified, beheaded. He himself came to the end of his life and he so faithfully preached the gospel that the emperor Domitian was sick of him and he ordered him, according to tradition, he had him boiled in oil in the middle of the Colosseum. John, and he still wouldn't die. And they were so fed up with him that they, they couldn't figure out how to kill him. They couldn't figure out how to get him to stop talking about Jesus. And so they took him and they exiled him on the island of Patmos. And this is where we find him in the beginning of Revelation. So if anyone, so the third thing, so one is, People ask questions that you can find in the scriptures, okay? The second thing, people ask questions mostly related to suffering. You know, why did my son die? Why did my mom die? Why did my dad? You know, all these different questions that we struggle with. And these, there is nothing wrong with asking these questions. There is nothing wrong. The word says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. None of us are called to be blind, just 
just fools following Christ for no reason. We're told to work it all out. If you have questions, ask them. But ask them from a perspective of understanding that he is and he's a rewarder of those that diligently, diligently seek him. And he will answer you. So, not all, sorry, you don't get all the answers in this life. He will answer you with information that is fitting everything that you need. He has promised that he will give us everything that we need. Doesn't mean you're going to get that answer to why he did this or why he did, did that. At some point we will. At some point we'll see it from his perspective, but not right now. So John, in the beginning of Revelation, I want you guys to turn to Revelation chapter 1. And in verse 9, it says, I, John, your brother, am partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, and this is Jesus appearing in the back of the room. This was John's experience. He's the only one that we get to see later in his life, another interaction after Jesus had ascended into heaven, where we, we get to see the interaction between Christ and one of his apostles who had followed him. And this is a good, it's believed to be about 60 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, that John, the beloved, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, arguably the most intimate person in Jesus's earthly life, gets the opportunity to see his friend, Jesus, once again. It says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning... I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, say, I said, Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. I got, I got some questions that need answering. Why, why don't you have a seat, Jesus? I got, I got some stuff I got to ask you. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And this is something that we see throughout the scriptures, that when Jesus Christ appears, it is not to be interrogated by us. He comes to, in this case, he comes to bring a message that he needs John to speak. And when he shows up to who might have been his best friend in his life on this earth, it's not, oh, hey, bro. What's missed you? What's going on, buddy? And if you see this in other religions where they're like, I was walking in the woods and Jesus showed up and, I, and he was like, you're so good. You're so, I, I was looking for you. Oh, hey, what's up? No. When he showed up, I fell at his feet 
as though dead, because that is the only appropriate response to meeting Christ in his glory. This man that fractured all of time and all of human experience, mankind was continuing on a particular path, doing things in a certain way where kingdom after kingdom was coming and conquering. And we have the Alexander the Great, and then we have the Roman Empire and all these things. And this man born to a humble family in Bethlehem comes in and divides the entire world as we know it. And still all of time rests on that moment where Christ was born. Everything that you understand about fairness and about equal rights and the rights we have as humans, as citizens of, of planet Earth, our constitution, I mean, everything is centered on the teaching of this man. And he came and he disrupted the world one time. And when he comes again, again he comes like a hurricane and there's no questioning him. There is no asking him, why'd you do it this way or why'd you do it that way? And when it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, it is not because God is going to come and have some committee where you get all your questions answered. And everyone goes, oh, okay, well, I, I guess that kind of makes sense from your perspective. Uh, I, I guess, yeah. That's not how it works. That's not what's described. It says that, he comes and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because there's no other appropriate response for us as fallen, finite creatures before a holy, righteous God. And so I implore you, what, what I am asking is whatever questions you have, get them sorted out now. Come to Christ ask your questions, figure it out. Because if you're relying on yourself, on your own kingdom, I mean, how many times have you forgot to set your alarm clock in the morning? If you're betting your soul and your eternal existence on your ability to just have it all figured out and to get it all together, you're going to have a rude awakening when you meet your maker. And it's a simple fact. So, I'm imploring you, if you haven't met Christ, then you don't know him and you don't love him and you don't serve him. And it's not to hold that over your head or to hold that against you because we are here because we want to introduce you to Christ. And that is the calling of each and every one of us. When Patrick talks about, you know, in missions, there's the, the people who go, the people who send, and the people who pray and everyone else is in the kingdom of God is in disobedience. If you're not doing one of those three things at the very least, then you're in disobedience because he has commanded us to preach the gospel to the nations. It doesn't matter. I, I talked to the brother here who was talking about just going across the street to the park and just talking to people about the Lord. You don't have to go to Africa. You don't have to go to South America. Whatever the Lord has called you to do, do that because that's the best possible thing you can do in his kingdom. If it was to serve in childcare in a tiny little church in paradise in Las Vegas, Nevada, then do that. If it's to serve overseas or, or whatever the case may be, then do that. But this is 
we see the end for John, not the end of his life, but he falls on his face as, as though dead. So we pick it up. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am al alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Only Christ in that day where we all fall on our face and we all fall on our knees and we proclaim that he is good, only Christ has the authority to lay his hand on you and to raise you back up and to say, fear not. And that is what I hope if Jesus appears in the room, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to be like a dead man. I'm sure of it because we've seen it happen enough times in the scriptures and that's always what happens. So chances are that's what's going to happen when we meet him, right? My hope is that he speaks over me. Fear not. I died and I'm alive forevermore and I hold the keys of death and Hades. That is your salvation. That is your confidence. That is your hope and the only hope that exists in this life. So we're going to have the worship team come back up and we're just going to pray. I want to, I want to go over this um, quote. It came to my mind earlier this week when I was just praying. I kept thinking back to this quote. If, if, some of you, if you guys have read the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, in his, it's basically an analogy of the Christian experience, the Christian life. And this man, Christian, he comes to this house where these three sisters, um, prudence, piety, and charity are all there. And prudence asks Christian a question. She says, and what is it that makes you so desirous to go to Mount Zion? And Christian responds, why there I hope to see him alive that did hang dead on the cross. And there I hope to be rid of all those things that to this day are in me an annoyance to me. And there they say that there is no death. And there I shall dwell with such company as I like best. For to tell you the truth, I love him because I was by him eased of my burden. And I am weary of my inward sickness. I would fain be where I shall die no more. And with the company that shall continually cry, holy, holy, holy. If you don't know Christ in that way, if you've not met him in that way where you just say, I am weary of my inward sickness and I cannot wait to see him and to be set free from it all. He's already lifted the burden. He's already taken that weight of having to meet the standard of God, that perfection. He's already lifted that off of you. If you're, if you're a believer, if you're a child of God, he has lifted that. If, he, if you are not, that is your opportunity today is he will lift that burden that you've been carrying of trying to be a good person and knowing that you just don't meet the standard. He will lift that burden off your back. And then when you know him and you love him and you serve him, you can say, I just want to see the one who hung dead on the cross on my behalf. And that's my prayer for all of you guys. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for your sacrifice, for your son, for the freedom that we have in Jesus, for 
the deliverance that we have in Jesus, for every gift that you've made available to us as your children. I pray that you would be with us today, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would speak through the worship and through the fellowship that we have here with our brothers and sisters, and that you would go with us, Lord. Show us what you would have us do this day and this week and from this point forward, where you would have us go, what you would have us do. We commit ourselves into your hands.